In On Violence, Franz Fanon writes, quote, The colonized subject manages to lose sight of the colonist through religion. Fatalism relieves the oppressor of all responsibility, since the cause of wrongdoing, poverty, and the inevitable can be attributed to God. The individual thus accepts the devastation decreed by God, grovels in front of the colonist, bows to the hand of fate, and mentally readjusts to acquire the serenity of stone." While acknowledging that this portrayal of religion has often been the case in reality, liberation theologians offer a different idea of God, one rooted in the historical mission of Jesus Christ. Wrongdoing and poverty are contrary to the will of God, so much so that God becomes a human being to inaugurate a project, the reign of God, whose explicit purpose is to liberate the oppressed, set captives free, and restore health to the sick. Jesus knew that the kingdom of this world belonged to the rich and powerful, but he proclaimed a different reign, one in which the poor seize the humanity which belongs to them. Jesus believed in this mission to the extent that he died for it. But his purpose did not end with his death. Rather, he calls each one of us today to take up our crosses and follow him. The work of liberation must continue no matter the cost. A church that condones the status quo is no church at all. The church must be revolutionary. This is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Enchowskis. Great to be back with you on the Liberation Theology Podcast after a little hiatus, our summer schedule here in which we're putting out about one episode a month here, and this one is coming at the end of this month of June. But today's is a special episode because we're covering my favorite chapter of Mysterium Liberationis, which is Juan Luis Segundo's On Liberty and Liberation. Segundo, born in Uruguay in 1925, entered the Society of Jesus in 1941, studied theology at Louvain with Gustavo Gutierrez, was ordained a priest in 1955, received his doctorate from the Sorbonne in Paris in 1963, and became one of the founders of the Liberation Theology Movement. Aside from his contributions to Mysterium Liberationis, I'd recommend two writings for those who want to get to know him a little better. First, The Liberation of Theology, adapted from a series of lectures given at Harvard Divinity School in 1974. And second, the series A Theology for Artisans of a New Humanity, especially the volume entitled Our Idea of God. Segundo died in Uruguay in 1996, and he is one of my role models as a Jesuit and without a doubt my go-to theologian. The text today is a short essay. It's very accessible, easy to read, so definitely give it a peek if you can, and it's well worth it because it really packs a punch. And after discussing the text, we will get into some Q&A. I'll address questions from listeners about process theology, labor unions, as well as comment on my recent article in America Magazine on Liberation Theology.
as did Roberto Oliveros in the history of liberation theology, Segundo starts with Vatican II in On Liberty and Liberation. He claims that Vatican II, a worldwide meeting of bishops in the 1960s, broke from a problematic tradition of uniformity in theological discourse. Catholic theology had become rather monolithic in the pre-conciliar era. We can keep in mind that the previous council, Vatican I, in 1869 and 1870, defined papal infallibility, and the pope who had called it, Pius IX, or Pio Nono, had previously issued the famous syllabus of errors that condemned liberalism, socialism, and religious pluralism. The Catholic Church did open up to some forms of dialogue with modernity between the 1870s and the 1960s, but Vatican II really did seal the deal. One effect of the Church's updating and opening in the 1960s was what Segundo calls the theologies of the genitive. And what he means by the theologies of the genitive is theologies of blank, like a theology of labor, theology of interreligious dialogue, theology of Latin America, a theology of women, theology of racism, theology of suffering, theology of miracles, etc. And these titles and others like them proliferated in the wake of Vatican II, and we see them continue into the present. When you ask many a theologian today about their work, they'll reply, I do theology of gender, or I do theology of liturgy, or theology of ethics, or the theology of a specific person, like the theology of St. John Paul II, or the theology of a specific place, like I do theology of Africa. In all the theologies of the genitive, we observe a certain relativism, whether theologizing relative to a particular topic or relative to a particular place. And Segundo says that that's good. We need specialized theology. We need local theology. We are incarnate beings with particular social and geographical contexts and particular theological interests. However, Segundo wants to make it very clear that liberation theology, or the theology of liberation, is not, in fact, a theology of the genitive, or at least it does not see itself as such. As he sees it, and indeed as I see it, liberation theology is not a particular reading or interpretation of theology. Liberation theology, rather, is total, not partial. It's not a relative reading, because as our guest Marcus Mesher has pointed out, liberation is God's signature act. The centerpiece of the Old Testament is the liberation of the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt, and that of the New is our integral liberation from evil sin and death. To put it succinctly, liberation theology is simply good Christian theology. It gets at the Christian reality itself. It's not simply one hermeneutic or interpretive uh, lens among many. And to marshal evidence for his thesis, Segundo notes that there's a circle in theology, and that circle features liberation at two points. And some people call this circle the hermeneutical circle. The first point in the circle is lived faith, and the second is revelation. Both the vast majority of contemporary Christian society and the biblical text speak of liberation. Liberation is omnipresent 
both in the world and in the scriptures. And in fact, it is oftentimes the topic in the world and in scriptures. And for more on this point, I'll recommend returning to the episode on biblical hermeneutics. But for now, let's follow Segundo to his next point, which is, if it's the case that liberation is so central to society and sacred scripture, then why did it take until the 1960s for people to wake up to liberation theology as a thing? How could the church, for the most part, condone or even contribute to the oppression of the world's poor masses, as it certainly did in Latin America? What's with the coexistence of injustice and Christianity in Latin America for five centuries, uh, when if, if the nature of Christianity is about liberation and the Bible's about liberation, then it doesn't seem that it's been lived that way. And so why are we just now perceiving the problem? Segundo gives four speculations to this interesting question. The first, he says, is the reconstruction of post-war Europe. The second, the new world politics of development and its failure. The third is Marxist pressure in universities, unions, and the political arena. And fourth is Vatican II, in which, uh, in Gaudium et Spes, in paragraph 11, it calls for more human solutions to problems in our world, and that these more human solutions would consist of structural changes. And I would say that All of these are contributing factors. Certainly the failure of Christian Europe, evidenced by two world wars and the subsequent search for a new, more social and humane Christianity after the horrors of the 1930s and 1940s. Certainly, the replacement of colonialism with neocolonialism and its discontents, and so this developmentalism, the Alliance for Progress, the failure of these projects. Then, of course, the sense that Marxists were offering a more attractive worldview to the poor masses, which was confirmed by the mass exodus of the laboring poor from the church in parts of Europe and Latin America. So, I mean, people who are struggling with poverty, who are not finding a solution in the church to their material problems, well, they're turning to other groups which are offering some liberation from their material concerns, and often that involved joining Marxist labor unions and the political struggle. And then, of course, the creativity that emerged from Vatican II as people were rethinking. People were, uh, one of the great terms that was used in pre-Vatican II days in theology and is is still very much so part of our theological discourse today is the ressourcement, which is a return to the original sources, which often meant a return to the Bible, a return to the early church fathers. And as people were sifting through the great amount of tradition that had been built up in the Catholic Church trying to get back to these original sources, to the heart of the gospel, people were discovering that uh, liberation was in fact at the heart of the gospel and that potentially the church needed to re-engage with the world according to the liberation that they were just finding all over the place, whether it was in the world or whether it was in the scriptures themselves. But I think we can sum up these assessments into a more general one. The conservative traditional church in society had failed the liberal democratic church and society had also failed, and a new revolutionary church and society were emerging. Segundo writes that people, especially the oppressed, came to see that liberty as a given is a farce. 
that liberty instead must be conquered. So what might he mean by that? Let, let's unpack this dense quote. Liberty as a given is a farce. Liberty must be conquered. I think we can unpack it by thinking about the ideas of rights and liberties. And rights and liberties are part and parcel of, liber, uh, of liberal politics, really. We can think of Jefferson. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Uh, we can think of the Bill of Rights. And the logic behind these human rights is that God gives them to us and governments secure them for us. That's all well and good, but it's not very material. And in fact, it often just seems like a lie. What is the right to life, which supposedly we have, when there's no universal health care? What's the right to education that we supposedly have when college means deep debt? And who is also freer to actualize the rights that they theoretically have. A poor person or a rich person, a black person or a white person, a man or a woman, a straight person or a gay person, a person from San Pedro Sula, Honduras, or a person from Lake Forest, Illinois. So you can have these great documents like the Universal Declaration on Human Rights from the United Nations that's telling you you have all of these rights, but materially you don't have them. <laughs> you don't see them materializing for you. And then what happens when intersections between these various depressed identities compound injustices and privileges. So what does it mean to be a black woman in San Pedro Sula, Honduras? What does it mean to be, you know, a straight person, a straight white male from Lake Forest, Illinois? These are different realities about which rights are accessible to you, though theoretically, you know, the, the playing field is leveled and everyone has access to these rights. Well, it's just not the case. We may have many rights, but what does it mean to have rights when life looks so different for so many different people? Aren't rights just sandcastles that the tides of capitalism and imperialism constantly wash away? And aren't liberties just fictions in a world where only money seems to talk. And I think that that is often what happens in liberal politics. We say that people have equal opportunity, but the perpetual injustices of race, class, and gender, among others, do not oftentimes work out in that way. So the oppressed cannot just wait for rights and liberties to fall into their laps. And that's what Segundo means when he says that liberty as a given is a farce and that liberty must be conquered. It's the basic distinction between reforming the current unjust system, not the way to go, and overturning the system and replacing it with a just one established by the oppressed for the oppressed, which is the way to go. When government of the people, by the people, and for the people started and ends up meaning government of the rich, by the rich, and for the rich, then something's wrong with this liberal democratic model at its core. The word liberation is a central word in the gospel. Segundo claims that it forms, together with salvation, the chief terms to express divine action. And indeed, the Greek word for unbind or liberate occurs 42 times in the New Testament. 
And the word for save occurs 106 times in the New Testament. And it's generally understood that to liberate has a narrower meaning, to untie the chains of oppression. And it's generally understood that to save has a broader meaning, to pull out of a danger that is threatening one's life. However, Segundo wants to argue that the biblical words translated as salvation, redemption, and liberation should all actually be translated as liberation because liberation best captures the theological meaning of the Greek and Hebrew originals. Liberation best speaks to humanity's biblical, quote, vocation to build the reign of God, end quote. And Segundo is not the only one to point out this key insight. Medellin and Vatican II, important recent meetings of Catholic bishops, have done the same. The bishops at Medellin write, quote, Just as formerly Israel, the first people, experienced the saving presence of God when God liberated them from oppression in Egypt, so too God saves when there's true development which is moving for one and for all from less human living conditions to more human living conditions, end quote. We see here that to save and to liberate are understood as synonyms. It's just the same to say that God saved Israel from the Egyptians or that God liberated Israel from the Egyptians. The saving action occurs in history, as we've explored in our previous episodes on Aechorea and the historicity of salvation. And the mission of Jesus is similarly earthly. God's reign is not merely in another realm, but is, as Vatican II affirms, quote, mysteriously present on earth, end quote. Vatican II also notes that the lack of any immediate consummation of Christ's reign, after all, Christ will come again, does not mean that we should passively wait for liberation. Rather, our Christian hope for the fullness of the kingdom should, quote, vivify our concern with perfecting this earth, end quote. And that's from paragraph 39 of Gaudium et Spes. This is the official church teaching on the matter. As much as some Catholics and other Christians want to deny the possibility that the earth can be perfected and so surrender themselves to the status quo as if they were surrendering to the will of God. In line with Vatican II, Segundo gives a beautiful definition of salvation. Quote, salvation and to save in biblical language meant the bending down of the compassionate and active love of God over a humanity that suffers for the purpose of liberating it from the burden of pain and humanizing humanity's conditions. End quote. Salvation is, in fact, what we do for each other in Matthew 25. Feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the migrant, clothe the naked, and care for the sick. Put succinctly, salvation is the satisfaction of our basic material needs. Though, as we pointed out with Clodovis Boff on liberation theology's method and epistemology, salvation is certainly not limited to the material. It's open to the beyond, but even the beyond, the afterlife, is bodily. We believe in the resurrection of the body and dependent upon our material actions in this life. When Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, the sheep are those who have acted to satisfy humanity's material needs, and the goats are those who have not. Segundo's contribution on the synonymy 
of salvation, liberation, and redemption is extremely important because it militates against a serious misconception of Christianity. It's commonly known that Christianity is about sin and salvation. The typical Christian question that we are asked, maybe on a plane or wherever, is, are you saved? And the assumption is that being saved equals going to heaven in the afterlife and that the means are believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But here's how I think we should answer that question the next time we're asked it. Are you saved? We should say, are there hungry people? Are there thirsty people? Are there migrants without a home? Are there people dying of cold and heat without the proper clothes? Are people dying needlessly of illnesses? And there are. So no, we are not saved. And we will not be saved until poverty and oppression are no more. The Hebrew slaves were not saved before Moses parted the Red Sea and they'd crossed to the other side safe from their oppressors. And we will not be saved, too until we, all of us, have crossed to the other side of the sea of oppression into the promised land of freedom. As St. Paul says, we have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Yes, salvation is something that we do, something that we work for together. It's something that is a continual process. We must run the race. Our salvation is finished, in a sense, in Jesus's cross, but it is not finished in another and very important sense in that look around, we're not saved. There's still much work to do. We've spoken about liberation, now let's move on to liberty. Curiously, neither Jesus nor the evangelists use the words freedom or free. Rather, the Gospels are replete with, quote, an evangelical realism that verges on a balanced and healthy materialism, end quote. What Segundo means is that freedom is an abstraction, and the Gospels are, on the whole, rather concrete. Jesus does not free people in Bible stories. He heals them and feeds them. Freedom is a non-topic for Jesus. In St. Paul, though, we clearly do see the terms freedom and free. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. And in Galatians 5, 13, Sisters and brothers, we have been called to freedom. Whereas Jesus spoke of liberation from something, namely oppression, material deficiency, Paul speaks of freedom for something. But for what? And now we return to something I've mentioned on previous episodes, Segundo's idea of project theology. We are free to be, as, as Segundo's book series title indicates, artisans of a new humanity. That's why Paul is constantly employing two metaphors to describe our Christian calling, agriculture and construction. Both imply collective work, collaboration on a common project. Farming and building require coordination, 
organization, planning. They also deal with material necessities, food and housing, both of which are mentioned in Matthew 25 as necessities for uh, caring for each other for our salvation. It's as if we, humanity, are an incomplete project, an untilled field, the foundation of a house. But this project, God wants us to finish it and finish it together, finish it, finish it with each other and finish it with God. It's as if the work of creation is not finished. And in Christ, we are now co-creators with God finishing it. To this understanding of our vocation as, quote, creators of a universe half built, placed here as owners of the home, as inheritors of the world, end quote, Segundo gives the name the Pauline Anthropological Key. He gives more evidence for this interpretation by citing St. Paul's references to filiation, our becoming children of God in Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, quote, When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. End quote. And back in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 17, Paul writes, quote, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. End quote. Segundo comments that in the ancient world, filiation meant equality. That's why Jesus was stoned, for saying that he was the Son of God. People thought that by claiming filiation, he was claiming equality with God, something they regarded as blasphemous. Well, now we are the children of God in Christ, as Paul writes. So God has essentially constituted us as something like little gods. We have the freedom of the children of God. And that's quite a lot of freedom. And Paul contrasts this freedom with the law, famously and constantly. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 27. Quote, Now, before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law was our schoolmaster until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. End quote. The law is associated with childhood and confinement here. Filiation, or our child relationship with God, is associated with maturity and freedom. Children obey rules from their parents. Adults have more freedom to shape their lives. They no longer owe blind obedience to these rules, and so too with us. We no longer have to constantly look to the law, have to look directly to God to tell us what to do. And it may see 
seem odd for a Christian to say this, that we don't have to look to the law or to God to tell us what to do. But then again, Jesus said much the same. We read in Luke chapter 12, verses 54 to 57, quote, Jesus said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? In other words, why look to the sky to find an answer to a problem that we can resolve ourselves? I think here of St. Augustine's celebrated quote, God created us without us, but God will not save us without us. The rain of God will not fall from the sky. We must till, plant, water, fertilize, and reap. We must build the city of God by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit active within us, that beautiful inheritance that Christ sent us to make us little gods. Christ ascends into the heavens, and the angels say, why are you looking up into the heavens? Read the signs of the times for yourselves, essentially, and go out and do the work that Christ has asked you to do, spreading the love of the kingdom. And of course, shortly after that, they begin to live in a communism of consumption, right? They share everything that they have in common, and uh, they begin preaching the gospel, which is preaching this new way of life that they have begun together in Christ, a life of prayer, a life of sharing in common everything that they have, including the Eucharist. This way of thinking also explains a passage that's often difficult for some folks to interpret. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. And I know that this verse certainly tripped me up quite a bit in college as I was studying the scriptures. Paul writes, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. End quote. Paul is saying that everything is permitted to the Christian, but not everything is beneficial. So we have to discern the difference for ourselves. We have to, well, grow up. It's for us to determine how to incarnate the project of love and solidarity that is the reign of God. And that's precisely why liberation theology relies on sociology, politics, and economics. God does not give us precise blueprints of God's reign. We have to analyze our reality and create them ourselves. We have to, in Jesus' words, judge for ourselves what is right. There's certainly a danger here. We can misuse our freedom and become enslaved to our passions. As we know, no, we can have the cookie, but if we have too many cookies, we might end up with some blood sugar problems. And we might have a smoke, but if we have too many marijuanas or too many nicotines, we might end up with some respiratory problems. And at this point in his argument, and no, uh, Segundo does not use the cookie and blunt examples, but he does offer a nice summary statement. Freedom is the ability to carry out the projects we want. And sin is the distance between wanting to do these good projects and actually doing them. Sin impedes our actualization of utopia, and utopia in the positive sense, in the sense of the good place that we want to exist but that doesn't yet exist. The biblical term for utopia is the new heavens and the new earth. 
And I think this is curious, thinking about sin in this way, right? Because we have the freedom to be able to do what we want, to create this world. At the end of the day, we can come together and we have the grace of the Holy Spirit, the power of God within us in order to carry out this amazing project of of social equality and justice. And yet we know that it doesn't happen very readily. And there's quite a gap between the great desires that we have for our society and what we actually do and what is being done. And that is where sin enters. It's this distance between our dreams for what our world can be and what our world actually is and what we're doing in our world. And we can even think about comparing this vision of sin, right, with Ea Korea's vision of sin that we discussed on the previous two episodes, his idea of sin being that which leads to death, right? We were talking about mortal sin. And so he talked about grace being life and life-giving, sin being death, death-giving. And I think there's a connection here because, of course, what utopia is at the end of the day is is life and life abundant for all God's people. And, uh, and and sin is death. And, and that's what it is. It's, it's the death of that project. Sin is the death of that project, whether it is a sin against hope, a sin against faith, where we say it cannot be done, or whether it's a sin against love when we act or don't act out of apathy or out of hatred or act in injustice and in prejudice. So we have a great responsibility, right? There's freedom, and with that freedom comes great responsibility. And here's, I think, where we see a little bit of the existentialist impulse that is part of liberation theology. Of course, liberation theology, you know, developing in some ways, and maybe for another episode, out of phenomenology, out of existentialism, and there's certainly a dialogue happening there, and many of these great liberation theologians being formed in France and in Belgium, where there's a strong existentialist impulse in the 20th century. And so that that great topic of freedom and that freedom that sometimes uh, makes us nauseous, the freedom that dizzies us uh, when we come to understand that we have a responsibility and uh, we are what we choose to do and we feel that weight on our shoulders. But some shy away from this responsibility, that of advancing on this meaningful historical mission in service of humanity, some live lives of quiet desperation and run from history and take refuge in transcendental hopes, false transcendental hopes, as Air Korea defined a transcendental in a way that was just magnificent on the previous episodes. But other people, and this is our calling, right, is to embrace this responsibility, to see salvation not as, quote, the private, individual, non-reign, search for God and otherworldly happiness, end quote, but as, quote, the rediscovery of the reign of God as the search for a change in the conditions of the poor, the weeping and the hungry, through structural transformation, end quote. Some make use of not just private, but political means in the broad sense of political, not just partisan politics, but uh, broad political and economic action. Some proclaim the biblical year of favor, that jubilee in which debt 
debts are forgiven and would that they be forgiven, especially for our poor young people who are suffering from these immense college debts and then go into a housing market, which is just so difficult when theoretically, again, we have these basic rights to education and housing and yet people are, it seems to be that housing and education are just making us suffer all the more. They're, they're very far from actualized rights. And, and so those debts forgiven, we want those debts to be forgiven. And we want, at the end of the day, society to be reorganized. That's what the biblical year of favor was about, those debts being forgiven and reorganizing society for the sake of equality. And some people, like Jesus, take the side of the poor, even unto death. And they're willing to pay the price for words written and proclaimed, actions planned and taken against the rich and powerful, and for the poor and the downcast. Some see that in the ministry of Jesus, the King of the Jews, and indeed King of the universe, God has implanted God's will on the very structure of society so that the reign of heaven finds its place on earth. That's what we ask for when we pray the Our Father. How should we pray? That God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what is this will? It is freedom, and freedom for the oppressed first. We're going to finish up today with the question and answer. Again, feel free to write uh, libtheopodcast at gmail.com with any questions that you have. But this first one here coming from Claudia Stewart, who writes, I've listened to both episodes on Aya Korea and have enjoyed learning so much. I find his perspective on reality to be consistent in ways with a process metaphysics. Do you have an opinion on process philosophy and theology? Thank you for all that you do. And this is a big topic, the relationship between process theology and liberation theology, and what I will say is going to be my opinion on this topic. But I would say, first of all, the first and short answer is that process theology, good. Process theology, good. And the longer one is that I'm into process theology for many of the same reasons that I'm into liberation theology, and even some of these we covered today. And let me just get into, into three. At first, many process theologians are quick to say that God is not omnipotent. And this statement has its shock value, uh, certainly. But as I understand it, what they really mean by saying that is that God does not act with unilateral power. And I think that that's right. We, we've seen today in this episode that just as a parent might hand over a family business to a child, God hands over the universe to us, God's children, so that we might build the reign together. God acts more like a parent than a monarch. And at least in that sense, God is not all-powerful. That is, in the sense that God shares power with humanity, right? God, in many ways, empties God's self of power. And Jesus empties himself of power, and that power is, is shared. And we think of Jesus's great teaching, right? I have come not to be served, but to serve. And so this is a very different understanding of power. So I think that we need to keep all of those things in mind because we say, of course, God is omnipotent. And, and in a sense, of course, that's 
very true. But the way that God exercises power is not in a way with which we are very familiar, right? Um, power, the will to power, the way that, that power is exercised on earth is not the same way that God relates to power. God's power is a shared power. God deliberately shares power within us and becomes, in a way, dependent upon us, which is a cool thing. And so, amen to that. Second, many process theologians talk about God changing. And this is kind of an easy one because, to be honest, so does the Bible. Many passages in which God changes God's mind, and these changes often involve human co communication with God, that kind of power sharing, right? That God, in some ways, makes God's self-dependent on humans, and that is our radical freedom, right, that we have to embrace or reject God. Humans convince God to act otherwise. Think of Abraham negotiating with God about sparing Sodom. I think that many preachers get to that passage and and just kind of wince a little when they see it because it, it's so difficult to understand because we're taught this vision of a static God, right? And so here is God changing God's mind based on Abraham's pleading. And then we think of to the Ninevites following the preaching of Jonah, right? Jonah uh, here we, we again we kind of see God's power, right? Is that God God is really going to use Jonah and even even though Jonah tries to run away, he's swallowed by the whale and then spit up on shore and, and God's going to use Jonah, right? But in another way, we see God's God's weakness, right? His, the opposite of God's power because God is going to destroy the city, but God relents and he relents on that punishment precisely because the Ninevites engage in prayer and fasting and penances. They, you know, they put on the sackcloth and the ashes, right? And tell God that they're sorry and they're converting. And then God decides, okay, I'm not going to destroy the city, but but uh, we're going to spare it. So there's just examples of God changing. And there's also the fact that in the Hebrew scriptures, God is not incarnate in Jesus, but in the Christian scriptures, God is incarnate in Jesus. And there's a difference, right? There's a change. And there's all the questions about this change happening in, in eternity, or does it, does it happen in time? It happens in Jesus's humanity, etc. But I would say at its face value, we see time and time again in the Bible and, and kind of a commonsensical understanding of who Jesus is we see God God changing and growing and Jesus growing in wisdom, growing into an adult. And so we have to reckon with that and think about that, the humanity of Jesus, right? And third, many process theologians assert that God suffers. And I want to relate this matter back to Segundo. He does a great job on, on this topic, I think, with another book. I believe it's in Our Idea of God, part of that series, Theology for Art Artisans of a New Humanity. He writes that it's sounder to say that we get to know who God is by getting to know Jesus than to say that we get to know who Jesus is by getting to know God. Jesus fills out the nature of God, not vice versa. And this Jesus who fills out the nature of God, right? Because God is relating to humans in, in a human way, right? Through vision, through sound in the Hebrew scriptures. But in the Christian scriptures, we, we see God as a human being, right? And so we're relating to God in an especially human way. And who is this human being who shows us who God is? Whoever has seen Jesus has seen God the Father, as Jesus says. Well, this Jesus cries on multiple occasions. This Jesus feels pain. This Jesus even feels the pain of others. That is, he is changed. He is made to feel pain by others. 
his guts wrench when he looks out on the starving masses and decides to work a miracle to feed them with those loaves and those fishes. He has a passion. He suffers and dies, and he also has compassion. So what does this reality mean for God? A God who hears the cry of the poor and is moved to act. Even, even in the Hebrew scriptures, God is hearing the cry of the poor, and having heard that cry, he says, I'm going to take action. As we discussed with the beginning of Exodus, I would highly recommend for anyone who is interested in liberation theology, a deep reading, a slow meditative reading of the first two, three chapters of Exodus goes such a long way because the Hebrew slaves are suffering. They're crying out to God, God, why have you forgotten us? And those prayers reach the heavens. And then God says, boom, I'm going to select Moses and I'm going to begin this process of your liberation. So God is feeling the suffering of God's people. And that continues today. That continues today. And I think that God continues to choose prophets, sometimes willingly, sometimes unwillingly, prophets who act like new Moseses to liberate their people. And, and we'll get into that a little bit more, right? Because next time we're going to have Ea Korea's utopia and prophecy. But Anyways, so what does this reality of God, that, that God of the first few chapters of Hebrews, the God who is Jesus, who is looking out with, with great compassion upon the masses, what does it mean that God suffers and God suffers with a human heart? I think of the sacred heart of Jesus. This sacred heart of Jesus, so many Jesuits, even Jesuits who have never had any devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus, find in the spiritual exercises time and time again that they develop a certain love for the sacred heart of Jesus. What is the sacred heart of Jesus? It is the crown of thorns around the heart of Jesus. So Jesus's pain, Jesus's suffering and sorrow, the mockery of Jesus. And then it is the fire that is emerging from that heart. The fire of preaching the gospel, the fire of the Holy Spirit, that spirit which comes into our hearts as well. And that meaning, that image has so much meaning for people. People love the image of the Sacred Heart. And we can see why, because it's Jesus in Jesus's humanity at the high and the lows, those moments when we feel fire and passion in our heart, those moments also when we feel great suffering and sorrow, those thorns. A second question, uh, more of a comment here, and I'm so thankful for this communication with Andy Dillon, who has been a great conversation partner on Twitter and on email as well on transposition and labor unions, and, and, and Andy writes so well here. One thing I thought when you were answering the listener questions and attempting to translate an understanding of Latin American experience and thinking in the 1970s to the U.S. in the present, the person who asked about the Catholic worker, for example, I think you actually covered better this morning with Ken Homan. And here he's speaking about how there was for the mining strikers in Alabama, a kind of all night long recording of different folks who were coming on air with the Valley Labor Report to speak about that. And there was kind of a question that, that emerged there. And what I said there was that engaging a labor union is a reflection of the ideas and action of liberation theology. So kind of what is to be done? What should someone who 
is interested in liberation theology and wants to practice it do. I spoke about labor unions. Anyways, Andy Dillon continues, the other thought I had is something you covered earlier in the series. The theology of liberation starts with experience and reflection comes after. Thus, any U.S. interpretation in our present circumstances is born from contemporary circumstances and experiences rather than attempting to transpose what happened or happens in Central America. And I think that is 100% true. And it makes me think a little bit about how one thing that is is often used in leftist uh, discourses today is this the Paris Commune. People are thinking about what happened in the Paris Commune, what lessons we can learn from the Paris Commune. And I think that there's like two things I want to say about that. One is, okay, great. Obviously, we need to learn from each historical moment and learn even from things that are happening in, in countries and contexts that are not our own. And I think that's very good. Some things are translatable. Other things are not in the sense that, you know, the Paris Commune is happening in a totally different social and political context from where we are today in the United States or like what might be the context of, say, the Philippines or the context of Guatemala. The Paris Commune is a different situation. So we want to learn from experiences and other times and places. But at the same time, we can't just say there's a one to one relationship or or even sometimes I think that we might get lost in those details of trying to learn from the past and not engaging our present conditions. And so I think that's 100% correct. And I think it's something that I feel myself in that, you know, my research and writing is often about Honduras. And of course, I do Honduran film and engage with the social and political and economic realities of Honduras in relation to Honduran film. My upcoming book is on Honduran film, Art, Identity, and Politics. So I'm thinking about that situation a lot. And then at the same time, I'm thinking about the United States situation a lot. And and this leads me to think of what is to be done in the United States for the sake of the liberation of the oppressed around the world. Or is that even possible? I think that that's a very important point that, that Andy makes. But I do want to come back to the idea of the labor unions. There was a young man who asked the other day, you know, what should I do to carry out this vision of liberation theology? And I did mention the idea of either joining a labor union where one is already working or starting uh, a labor union and organizing a labor union where someone is already working as a great way to live out liberation theology in our present moment. And I want to turn to, I did write an article in the Jesuit Post a little bit earlier in this year because Pope Francis declared that this year would be the year of St. Joseph, and we know that St. Joseph is the patron of workers, and so I think that this year is uh, maybe a special graced time for the organization of labor. And in that article, I pointed out this important paragraph from the Compendium of Catholic Social Teaching, which is paragraph 281, 281. And it reads, quote, The relationship between labor and capital also finds expression when workers participate in ownership, management, and profits. This is an all-too-often-overlooked requirement and it should be given greater consideration. On the basis of work, each person is fully entitled to consider oneself a part owner of the great workbench where one is working with everyone else. A way towards that goal could be found by associating labor with the ownership of capital as far as possible, end quote. So this is really a revolutionary paragraph that, that is often overlooked and often not practiced is this participation of workers in ownership, management, and profits, the association of labor with the ownership of capital. 
And it's sad because in many organizations, many businesses, even Catholic ones, this idea is just totally off the wall. You know, someone might bring this up and you'll be laughed at for saying that we should actually live out this aspect of, of Catholic social teaching. I mean, imagine some Catholic universities or Catholic hospitals in which workers would have a direct say in the functioning of the university and in a way that's meaningful, right? Not just in, you know, you kind of... you. Ha- you have your little representation in a committee that doesn't uh, have power at the end of the day. But I'm talking about real representation, right? The, the, the true participation of labor and ownership management and profits. And, and this is what labor does. When labor can sit down with the university or the hospital or whatever business it may be and negotiate with the budget books on the table, we're in a different situation, right? Where there is real power that can come from labor. And so I think that we need to rediscover and reinforce the great American labor tradition. And so that's a great way. That's a great way to be involved. And I think that what it comes down to is oftentimes liberation theology can be associated with the the d- democratization of politics in that we want a church that's more democratic. We want a church that is less monarchical, uh, just as we want a society that is less monarchical and, and more democratic, less oligarchical, more democratic. Well, so too, we want economics to be democratized. There, there should be a progressive movement by which workers seize power in their organizations. That's what I would recommend. That's where it's at. Uh, if someone wants to practice liberation theology, I think that is a great way to begin. So I thank Andy for bringing up that point. Thank you. A third question, again, a little bit more of a comment here, is that I received some positive feedback from people about an article that I had written in America Magazine, the magazine of the Society of Jesus based in New York, and it was entitled, Once I Discovered Liberation Theology, I Couldn't Be Catholic Without It. I want to call our attention to a certain part of that article, which I find moving in particular, which is that college search for a meaningful life project. I think many college students like myself when I was at Wake Forest and studying abroad as well is I was trying to find out what am I going to do with my life? Where is my call? What do I enjoy doing? And one of the things that always caught my attention when I was reading the Bible, maybe it was with a youth group, maybe it was when I was growing up in the parish, is that Jesus is a radical lover and he is calling his disciples to a radical love, and that that love is often expressed in poverty and in sharing, a sharing of goods. I think of the rich young man. I think of the early disciples holding all of their possessions in common. And after reading that and hearing that in church over and over again, you think to yourself, well, why don't we do that? Because it seems pretty clear that that's what Jesus wanted us to do. 
And in the Acts of the Apostles, that's how the early church interpreted the mission of the church, and yet it doesn't seem to be happening in our church in the contemporary world. And of course, I really only had a vision of what the church was like in my particular local context in the United States. But then when I had gone to Chantla in Huehuetenango in Guatemala and began to work with the URNG Maíz, this radical revolutionary uh, national unity party that had been involved in the armed conflict and had pacified in time and was then undergoing this campaign for the presidency of Rigoberta Menchú. Many of the people involved in this organization were deeply committed Catholics, and they were also promoting many of these things that the gospel was calling for like the sharing of property, the idea that there really is no private property, and that we should be satisfying people's basic needs. As we were talking about today, that salvation really does mean, in Jesus's language, the caring for water, caring for food, giving people shelter and health care. And all of that was being expressed in this radical way. And so when I had met that, though it took me a number of years to internalize the meaning of that, there was a seed that was planted there that leads me to now make that bold claim that I make at the beginning of the article, which is that after seeing the gospel lived out in that radical, integral way of integrating faith and politics as it happened with the URNG Maiz, as is so beautifully captured in that documentary, When the Mountains Tremble, where Rigoberta Menchu shares the story of her family and relates uh, her Christian faith and also priests who were involved in the liberation theology movement and uh, uh, sharing their interpretation of what was happening in their theology at that time, you know, you see that and it just becomes a part of how you must act. You know, you see the integrity and the integrity calls you to that same integrity myself. So I would encourage, if you haven't taken a look at that article in America, do give it a read. Let me know what you think. Very powerful resource to maybe share with college students or high school students who may be benefited, who are searching for a life project. And I do think that the life project of working for the liberation of the oppressed with the oppressed is a meaningful life project. And in a Christianity that is oftentimes interpreted to be so spiritual and so esoteric and so otherworldly, this is an option for a Christianity that is meaningful both in the beyond, because uh, we're not denying that. We're not denying Jesus's resurrection and the resurrection of the dead and the bodily resurrection. None of that is being denied. And certainly I hope to join <laughs> when I die uh, that great choir of saints in heaven. But also I desire, like so many, to see more human conditions, as was spoken of at Medellin and Vatican II. So give the article a read, share it, let me know what you think. That is a wrap for today. On our next episode, we'll return to Ignacio Eucaria once again with his chapter, Utopia and Prophecy. It's a hearty one, some 50 pages, but I do highly recommend giving it a read as, well, utopia and prophecy are just so core to what liberation theology is and 
Air Korea really does give a wonderful systematic treatment of those topics. So give that a read in preparation, and in July we'll have that episode out. For now, let's end with a prayer for workers taken from Pope Francis since, as Segundo points out, we are co-workers with God, and as uh, Andy Dillon reminded us of the, the labor unions, which is a great way in order to live out this vision of liberation theology, let's pray this prayer for workers. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, look down upon us. Look upon our families. Lord, you were not without a job. You were a carpenter. Lord, we have no work. The idols want to rob us of our dignity. The unjust systems want to rob us of hope. Lord, do not leave us on our own. Help us to help each other, so that we forget our selfishness a little and feel in our heart the we, the we of a people who want to keep on going. Lord Jesus, you were never out of work. Give us work and teach us to fight for work and bless us all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.